I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. We care about your world. My guest is Miles Schertz. He's a counselor, meditation teacher couples counselor, mediator, and author of Beyond Perception, Conscious Communication, and Conscious Communication for Couples. So in our last two recent conversations, we talked about racism and bias, and then we talked about the victim-oppressor paradigm, also talking about it in light of the political polarity and the way both sides of the political spectrum are feeling about each other and how easy it is to get caught up in that victim-oppressor paradigm. And and today we're going to talk about one of your new or recent booklets titled The Tyranny of the Ego. And I would love for you to talk about what you mean by tyranny of the ego and also, as you're talking about that and describing that, give us a sense of what the ego is in this context, because we all have egos, and our ego is is very central in all of our lives, and yet many of us are completely unaware that it even exists, or that it's something other than who we identify as ourselves. Yes. So I think that's a great place to start. The The title of the book, uh, it's a little booklet, easy to read, hopefully, <laughs> is The Tyranny of the Ego. So yeah, let's define tyranny and ego. Um, tyranny's hopefully a little bit easier to define. I start the book or kind of build on the premise that most of us feel uncomfortable and imagine that we're being controlled or being tyrannized by something. So it's a, it's a very universal human experience that somebody or some organization or something is wielding power over us, is controlling us for their own benefit. So that's the idea of tyranny. And, you know, it's authoritarian leadership that does not have our best interests in mind, but rather is controlling us for their own benefit. And human history is just packed with stories and examples of 
fighting against that tyranny, and we've made it into this kind of noble cause. And the book begins with the idea that we all feel that we're being tyrannized, but that we're not sure who's doing it sometimes. Sometimes the tyrant is visible and apparent, and we know who it is, and we know who to push back against, and sometimes we don't. So the exploration in this book is that the discovery I'm hoping that readers will make is that the tyrant that's controlling your life is not what you thought. It's not somebody or something outside in the world, but rather a hidden, invisible programming that's embedded in your own thinking mind, which is a big concept to unpack, and it's a stretch. But that's what the book is aimed at, and the name I'm giving to that hidden invisible programming is ego. And so that's the word we should spend a little more time on because it's it's a word all of us know, I think, and it's used so frequently that it's easy to associate it with certain concepts that may not necessarily be helpful. So I just simply want to define ego as the idea or the belief, the sense that I am a separate individual, separate from you and separate from everything around me and I have my own source, you know, I, I am self-sufficient, I don't need anything else, essentially, and I'm on my own. I have, to, I have to fend for myself. It's the idea, that the basic premise that most of us just assume is reality, that we're each individuals having to fend for ourselves in the world. That's the concept of ego that I'm pointing to. And... I think it's really important, as I've taught this and found language for it over the years, I've noticed that most people associate ego with either a negative evaluation, ego is bad, ego is evil in some way, or ego is the problem, or ego is good. We have to have an ego. We can't live without it, so we try to make it a good ego. And I want to just directly address that. I'm not suggesting that ego is bad. Um, as I get into in the book, that concept of right and wrong, good and evil, good and bad, is part of the ego's programming. It's part of the ego's language of duality. Everything has a contrast with an opposite. And if we label the ego as bad, what happens is we're reactivating its programming. We're playing into its ruse. We're, we're buying into the ego's illusion of two things, good and evil, right and wrong. So it's not useful in any way, I think, to label the ego as wrong. What's helpful, and the way I like to present it is, it's simply not real. It's, a, it's an idea. It's not, it doesn't exist. It's a, it's a concept. And it's very hard to unpack that because the one thing most of us are certain about is that we, we exist as this separate person, a separate personality. In my case, this person I call Miles. Most of us are really convinced that that's real and that's who we are. It's the most fundamental aspect of our reality is that we exist as a separate personality. And what I'm doing in this book is, is really challenging that assumption, which is a stretch because it's such a basic assumption. But when I talk about ego, I'm really just talking about this common assumption and experience that most of us have that we assume is real, that we are a separate individual personality and we're in some way separated from everybody else. So that's what I'm calling ego. So you say in this booklet and in your work, you try to dismantle that for people. How do you do that considering that 
most of us, just about all of us, are completely identified with our egos without, mostly without any sense of there being any separation between us and our ego. Exactly, and so it's a great question. How do you even start the conversation? How do you start getting people to look at the ego as something separate from themselves? And as I really try to lay out in the beginning of this little booklet, that's really the only task. That's the only thing that's required, which is the good news. It's really just exposing this idea of ego for what it is as an idea rather than as a reality. And so experiencing yourself as something apart from the ego, something once you experience yourself, let's say, without an ego for a moment, the reality starts to dawn on you that you're not this separate self. You're not this private mind, you know, that's absorbed in chronic thinking. That's not who you are. Once you can step outside that and observe it from a point of neutral witnessing, you realize that that's not who you are. And as soon as you have that experience, reality starts to shift. Your perception and programming starts to fade because you have seen it for what it is. You've seen that it's a it's an idea concept. It's not who you actually are. That That's all we have to do, and it's a big task <laughs> because most of us never even consider questioning our ego. We don't see it. It's invisible. As you as you said at the beginning here, most of us don't ever think about our ego or realize that we have one. What we usually do is we see other people's egos, right? Mm-hmm. We can see, oh, that person has a big ego. And when we use concepts like that, we're using it as a negative. You know, you have a big ego or you got to control your ego. And there's some truth in that. And we do see other people's egos much more easily than we see our own. But the fact is that it remains invisible to most of us because it is the lens or the programming that we're looking at the world through. Everything we do and experience, we filter. It gets automatically filtered. We don't even realize we're doing it. Automatically filtered through the lens of ego. And because ego is the lens we're using, we never see it. We just assume that what we're seeing is real. You know, just a simple example of that is that everything... If you watch your mind, and this is where the practice of meditation or some self-awareness practice is really essential, to be able to slow your thinking down enough to see it, to observe it, and notice the, the train of thought, notice the sequence of your thoughts, and you'll see that every thought has a reference to yourself, to you. It's everything you see and experience, all the information your senses bring in, gets filtered through this ego lens to be about you. So your, your mind is continuously weaving the story of you as a separate personality, you, Tonio, or me, Miles. And that warps our perception and distorts our direct experience. And so we're not seeing something as it is. We're seeing something as our mind relates it to the story of us. And that's the limitation. That's what keeps us kind of caught in this very limited circular patterning of everything is about me and referring everything back to me, and it prevents me from seeing that there's an ego thought system programming that's behind it all. So we take 
everything very, very personally as being related to us as a separate entity, a, a separate individual. And the ego is essential, is really in charge of our survival. And at the core of that is really its own sense of survival. When I suspect deep down it knows that it doesn't really exist, that it's really operating on the most tenuous of ground. And so just as we tend to project everything outwardly, so does the ego. And that's really where there's that overlay. Exactly. The ego has us convinced that it is us. And the way I present it in the book, these are pretty almost science fiction-like concepts because the only way to really talk about it is that the ego, it's like a parasite, or I, I liken it to a virus that's invaded our mind and taken over our mind for the sole purpose of reproducing itself. In that way, it's very similar to a virus. A virus, like the current coronavirus, gets into our body, and then it attaches to the cells in our body and breaks the cell wall and, and replaces that cell's DNA with its own DNA and uses our actual cells in our body to reproduce the virus. That's, that's how it works, and its survival depends on reproducing itself using our cells. So in a very similar way, your ego depends on reproducing itself using your mind. And the thing is that this is impossible to believe, and I'm not asking anybody to believe it. If you, if you simply believe it, it's not going to change anything. We could make a, re a new religion out of this and call it the, you know, the religion of non-ego or something. But then we're just back into the world of belief. And what really changes things, what will actually free you, is to see it for yourself. This is one of the core teachings of the Buddha that made me so interested in learning about his other teachings was one of the fundamental things the Buddha taught was he said, don't believe me, don't believe anything I'm telling you, and don't believe anything anybody tells you. Use it as suggestions and then look for yourself. And then he taught us this simple practice of meditation that would allow you to clear your mind of thought for a moment in order to use your mind as a, as a tool of pure awareness. And as you do that, you can see clearly. It's like the fog clears. You're not lost in the, in the fog of perpetual thought, but you're starting to see directly, and that's what he called insight. Insight meditation is the form that I practice and teach, and as you see clearly, you begin to see that the ego is just a string of thoughts, all relating to the story of you. It, there's a history, there's memory, there's a future, there's planning and projecting into the future, and there's all the, as you said, every experience we have, we take it personally, <laughs> and we take it personally because that's how the ego has us conditioned. We make it about us. If somebody does something to hurt our feelings, which happens all the time, we take it personally. We think they were trying to hurt our feelings, and we usually react to defend ourselves, which is where the problems really start, is we end up, we end up in conflict a lot because our ego takes everything personally. And the idea of being tyrannized by it is that it's, it's really controlling us solely for its own proliferation. The ego is controlling our mind solely for the purpose of perpetuating the illusion that we are the ego. And if you start to watch your thoughts, 
you'll see that every single thought relates to the story of you. And if you let go of a thought, which is not an easy thing to do, because when you let go of a thought, you're actually letting go of you for a moment. But when you let go of a thought, you'll find underneath it the silence that comes just after that thought disappears. There's peace, and there's certainty, and there's a sense of connection that doesn't exist when we're lost in thought. And that's the point of spiritual work, and that's the point of this book, is to get to where we can undo the tyranny of the ego, where we can step away from its tyranny and free ourselves. And you talk about meditation, and there's a lot of different notions of what meditation is, particularly in the West. To a large degree, it's being co-opted for stress reduction, for efficiency, <laughs> you know, to make us more efficient in our, in our lives, in our work, in our relationships, to help us in our, to fulfill our, our goals and ambitions. But you, you talk about meditation as something that sharpens our direct awareness, giving us the ability to clearly distinguish thought from direct experience. Exactly. Now, since most people are living in the realm of their own thoughts, you know, their self-generated, self-centered thoughts continually, um, what is direct experience and how does it differ from our thoughts and the stories that we tell ourselves about our experience and about reality? Yeah, that's a great question. And just to back up what you were saying about meditation first, the word is being used much more commonly now, which is, I think, a, a really good thing. When I started meditation in the 1970s, very few people knew what it was or had any idea about it. And now it's a much more commonly used. But I think, as you said, it's often um, water, what I would call watered down or diluted into a way to cope with stress. And it is a way to cope with stress. It can help immensely to calm and center a person. However, it's, it's a much more powerful tool than that. That's just the beginning. And the way the Buddha presented it, which comes through, I think, very clearly in these ancient teachings of Buddha, is that it's a tool for seeing clearly. The word that was often used for meditation in his teaching is vipassana, which is sometimes translated in English as insight meditation. And it means the word vipassana, a Pali word from the Buddhist language, translates in English as to see things as they are. So the premise of his teaching is that you're seeing reality distorted, and that's not going to satisfy you. That's going to lead to continuous suffering because we want to see things real. We want to get down to the bottom of it. Every human being, all of us, has this urge to know what's actually happening. And he simply said to do that, you have to cultivate this direct awareness, this direct seeing that doesn't filter your experience through your thinking mind. So for most of us, that may sound very confusing, but if you start to look at how your mind works, you'll see that as soon as you have a direct sensory experience, your mind has a thought about it almost instantly, so that we translate all of our direct sensory experience into thought so quickly that we only see the thought, we rarely see the direct sensory experience. So we draw, our mind draws conclusions and makes stories about things. And one of the 
simplest and most effective things that I teach in, when I teach meditation is to help someone distinguish between a thought and a direct experience. And for most of us, that's, that's a totally new idea. So just to unpack that briefly here, a thought is words, concepts, or images generated by your mind. It's a piece of a story. It's a line from a story. That's what a thought is. And if you watch your mind for a moment, you'll see that it's always generating thoughts. It never stops. It's generating thoughts that are building this story. And direct experience has no thought or words or concepts associated with it. It's direct experience. So, for example, if I'm standing in the sun and I feel the sun on my skin, there's a warmth, there's a kind of a feeling of, heat and warmth and light on my skin, that's a direct experience. My mind will instantly think, oh, I like this, this is great, I love the sun, or oh, it's too hot, I don't like this, I have to get in the shade. Those are the thoughts that come immediately after the direct experience, but the direct experience is just that feeling that you get on your skin when the sun hits your skin. So our lives are filled with direct experience. However, the ego, as you talked about earlier, is continually regenerating itself. It's continually perpetuating itself like a virus. And the way it does it is through these stories that it tells in, in its own way of integrating each new experience. That's right. And it does it in a way that fits into its own pre-existing or its developing sense of self in yes. separate individual self so that it yes. fits so the ego with... has a narrative that it's always pushing and the narrative part of spiritual practice any any deep spiritual teaching all it can do really is is highlight these narratives that your mind keeps repeating so for example a narrative that you and I've talked about in recent weeks on this radio show is the narrative of being a victim that's part of the ego's narrative, is that I'm the victim of somebody else who has more power and authority and control over me. And that narrative, every experience that I have will then, in some way, fit into that narrative. So I'm basically proving it by translating, my ego is proving it by translating my experiences into that narrative. And the problem with that is it's distorted and it distorts our experience of reality, and it creates a lot of suffering unnecessarily. It creates a sense of, I'm not free, I'm being, I'm being controlled, when in fact I am free, it's just my ego that's creating a picture, and I'm believing in that picture. So, as you said a moment ago, we have direct experience all the time, but we rarely take it in as direct experience. How we experience it is as a thought or concept or conclusion in our mind. And as soon as that happens, which is, for most of us, instantaneous, we don't even notice it happening, our mind translates our experience. As soon as that happens, we're not able to see things as they are. We're seeing things through the way our mind presents them. And we tend to react to those distortions that we think we're perceiving. Exactly. And those reactions are often violent in a way. It's like, particularly if we feel like we're a victim, I think one very natural response is to think, well, 
I don't like being a victim, therefore I have to, you know, turn the tables on the situation. And I think a very logical or or almost natural reaction response would be to try to become the opposite of the victim. In this model, it would be becoming the oppressor, becoming more powerful. That's right, and that is one of the problems with the ego's conditioning, the ego's programming, is that it sets us up for chronic conflict and tension. We're always, think of it this way, each one of us individually always has some enemy that we're fighting. There's always an enemy, and that's not just coincidence. It's the way the mind, the ego mind sets it up, because what happens, and I I try to illustrate this in the book, and again, these illustrations are just for you, for each one of us individually, to look for ourselves and see, can you see this happening in your own mind? If you can, it's a game changer. And if you can't, then just let it go. (laughs) It doesn't help to believe in it. It's just an idea to explore on your own, in your own awareness of your own thoughts. And the idea of, you know, what happens when we identify as a victim is that then we have an enemy and all of our resources go into fighting that enemy. We focus on that. And as soon as we do that, we're engaging our ego. The ego is the only resource that we depend on exclusively, our thinking mind. We depend on it so exclusively. So it's got us caught in this sort of a perfect storm of the perfect, what I call the mother of all conspiracy theories, is that our ego has us convinced that we can't survive without it. And then it manufactures these threats in the form of, I'm a victim and somebody out there is trying to oppress me. And as soon as there's a threat, I instantly activate my ego to defend myself. And as soon as I've done that, I'm, I'm wedded to that illusion. I'm wedded to the ego's paradigm, and I can't see it because I'm so engaged in it. So it, it distorts our experience of reality, often with very tragic and, as you said, violent consequences. And you can see it all through the world today, how, how we end up fighting against each other. We, we end up pitted against each other. Our nation, I would argue, and our world is really being torn apart by it. And it's the source of it is, is these mistaken, deluded ideas that we get from the ego. And if we don't undo it at the source, if we don't see that it's caused by our own ego, we're just going to rip each other to shreds. We're just going to fight with each other until we've destroyed perhaps the planet and humanity itself. And in our lives, I think we've all experienced this over and over and over again, we often misunderstand each other and often misunderstand each other profoundly in ways that that just seem to inevitably bring up conflict because it becomes, you know, the first misunderstanding creates a reaction in the other person, which then creates another reaction in ourselves, creating a an ongoing vicious cycle that often just keeps escalating until we end up at a at a massive crisis point that resolves itself in some kind of violent way and hopefully everyone survives to learn to realize that oh this was just a, a misunderstanding or or else there's another way of of resolving this than killing each other 
or killing the other person. Exactly. So what you're saying is so helpful that if you burrow down into the, into the origins of conflict, almost every conflict originates in a misunderstanding, and yet we don't catch it at that level. So it compounds itself. And as I mentioned earlier, the ego has a narrative that it's, it's actively trying to prove, which is I'm the victim and there's somebody else out there oppressing me. That's the idea of tyranny. There's somebody tyrannizing me. And it's everything that I filter through my thinking mind, every thought I have will feed that narrative because that's what the ego is, is a sort of a self-defining illusion. It's a self-defining you know, agent that's taken over our conscious mind. And it's made itself real by proving over and over again its reality through commandeering our thoughts, and we don't see that. If we did see it, we wouldn't participate in it. As soon as you see something that's controlling you, it no longer has the same power to control you. That's the, that's the allure of these conspiracy theories that are proliferating now at an at a alarming rate, these kind of very complex and fantastical conspiracy theories. The lure is that we don't know who's behind it. And if we did, it wouldn't be a conspiracy theory anymore, and it would expose it. So really, we can take a lesson from that, that the main thing that we need to do to free ourselves from the tyranny of the ego is to expose it. We don't have to fight with it, and we don't have to overcome it. We don't have to get rid of the ego. We don't have to stop our mind from thinking. You can't do those things, because every time you try, every time you engage the ego by resisting it or pushing trying to push it away, you're using its language, you're using its method, and by doing that, you're feeding it. So it's a very tricky thing, this um, practice, let's say, of undoing the ego, of getting out from the tyranny of the ego, because you can't use the ego's methods to do it. You have to find a different method, and that's what Buddha was trying to teach us about awareness. Awareness is the simple, your presence, your full presence, without thought. So the idea is to begin to calm and settle your mind through a practice like meditation to where you can experience more moments of no thought. It's not getting rid of thought. It's just letting the thoughts settle, letting them go, coming back to a present moment sensation. That's really the essence of insight meditation. We use the sensation of the body breathing to just bring awareness back, bring awareness back, and after some time, it takes some practice and discipline and, and dedicated effort. After some time, you develop, you begin to notice a feel, what I call a field of awareness. It's like a, you can feel it. It has texture. It has substance. You can rest in it. It's a field of awareness. It's, it, at first, that looks like nothing's there because there's no thought defining it. But then you begin to realize it's full of energy and life, movement. But it just doesn't have shape or form or concepts. It's not an idea. It's a, it's a direct experience of reality. And that's what meditation is aimed to do. It's aimed to allow us to have that direct experience. And the main reason to have that direct experience is that your allegiance to your ego will start to fade as soon as you experience yourself as something other than ego, something without... When you experience your mind without thought as pure awareness, your relationship to yourself your experience of yourself will change. And you'll then see that thought, the ego, the, the thinking mind, is just a layer. It's just an overlay. And it's not who you are at your core. 
So you and I, you know, we both started this practice of meditation, this kind of spirit, you could call it a spiritual journey to connect with who we really are. We began in the 70s. So that is like, like 45 years ago, roughly. And it's a continual practice and even a struggle at times because I find, I'm not sure about you, but I, I definitely find that my ego continually tends to hijack me and take me off onto these tangents of misunderstanding and reaction. Yeah, that's a really good summary of what it is to be working on yourself, to be trying to be more self-aware, what I call sometimes being on a spiritual path. I know that word is a little overused, so I tend to try to find other language for it, but I think that's what you're describing, and I think what you're saying is um, having focused on this for a good long time, you and I both focused on this over 40 years, started learning about meditation and practicing it back in the 1970s, and still noticing that the ego can come in and hijack the whole process. The ego is very subtle and very manipulative and really good at making us believe that we're doing something that's not actually happening. So, for example, we could say, I'm now on a spiritual path and I'm, a, I'm focused on dissolving my ego or releasing the ego. And the ego loves that story because the ego can get behind that. You know, the ego will say, yes, let's go, let's go get rid of the ego. <laughs> and what's so subtle about this is that if there's a thought, if there's an objective, if there's a goal, if there's something to fight against, even the ego, we're back in the ego's realm. We're back under its spell. We're in the illusion of it. So the only way out is to just let go of thought altogether. Not, not that you give up your capacity for thought, I'm not asking or suggesting that we get lobotomies and, you know, wipe out our thinking mind. What I'm saying is, let's not let our thinking mind run the show, because it's not doing a good job. It's tyrannizing us, and it's creating more conflict than it's resolving, and it's showing us a world that's dangerous and, and insecure, and it never allows for that to resolve itself. In the ego's paradigm, there's always a new enemy. You never get to the end. It's never peace. It's never harmony. It's never settled. And we could say that's just the product of our world, you know, the bad people in our world, but really it's a product of the way your mind is programmed. And until we see that, it's going to keep generating it. But as you see that and unhook from it, you realize that it's really just an illusion, that there's enemies out there trying to hurt me that what's really happening is misunderstanding, as you said earlier. And it doesn't mean we don't take care of ourselves. It doesn't mean we can't have healthy boundaries. It doesn't mean that we can't, you know, protect ourselves. But it means that we don't react out of our imagination. We don't believe what our thinking mind is telling us. We use our senses and we use our awareness to be fully present. And in that presence, we can see what's happening, and, it's, and we don't have to act out of fear. We don't have to act out of paranoia. We can see what's happening more clearly, and we can respond to it. And most of the time, it's not personal. <laughs> most of the time, when somebody hurts us, or when we feel oppressed, or when we think we're the victim, it's not personal. It's just someone else trying to get their needs met in a, in a way that's 
not very effective, but it's not personal. Another way to frame all this is that if we can go through life and not take it personally, and I know that's simple to say but hard to do, but if we can not take it personally, everything changes. Just notice in your own life if something happens and you can say, well, okay, that hurt, I didn't like that. It didn't feel good. I, I was scared or I felt I was really hurt by it. That's one thing. It's another thing to say, oh, they were trying to hurt me. That person's out to get me. And when we go to that level, which the ego usually does, then we're disturbed. Then we're really suffering. And that level of suffering doesn't ever resolve itself because in the ego's language, there's always somebody that's trying to hurt us. There's always somebody that's out to get us. So I'm just saying we, we can let go of that and we can experience things directly without and it will change our world, and we will no longer feel tyrannized. I've heard numerous enlightened people, you know, become free of their ego and thinking, and when asked about, you know, their ego and, and if they have thoughts and, and stuff, they all say, oh yeah, I have an ego and I have thoughts that arise but I just don't believe those thoughts. I don't fall for, for those stories anymore. I see through yeah. them. And I just allow them to come up. And when I don't buy into them, they just naturally dissipate after a, a little while because that's I'm not right. feeding them. And that's what we tend to do is when we believe what our ego is telling us or we believe the thoughts that arise in our mind in response to things that are happening around us, we're actually feeding them energy, which amplifies those things, and then we engage in knee-jerk reactive mode. Exactly. That, that's a great description of life, <laughs> as yeah, we know it. Exactly. And just to put it in the language I'm using, and I, I hesitate, of course, to overuse this word, but... It helps me to simplify it, to, to bring it all back to a cause that I can really focus on. And I would, I'm, I'm making the case here that the cause is, is this ego, the programming that comes with the ego. And so whenever I engage to fight the, the oppression, the tyrant, by default, I'm engaging the ego to do that. And as soon as I engage the ego, I strengthen its story so that... I continue that process by engaging the ego to fight for my freedom. <laughs> and it's a, it's a circle that never ends. It's a, it's a so-called vicious cycle that never ends. And we don't get out of it by struggle. We get out of it by surrender, by deep, deep surrender. So, you know, a couple images come to mind. One from the Christian tradition that, I, that I've loved and, and I think is quite misunderstood, but pretty universally known, as I think many people can remember that Jesus Christ was quoted or reported to have said, when someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. You know, that famous Christian teaching of turn the other cheek. And I think most of us don't understand what he was getting at there, and, and we think it means, you know, just don't fight back. But what he's saying is exactly what you just said, is that if we fight back, we feed the ego. We strengthen the story that we're a victim and we're isolated and we have to fend for ourselves in a hostile world. If we don't fight back, 
if we turn the other cheek, if we simply allow the transgression and, as Jesus would probably say, forgive that person, let it go. Forgive means let it go. If we just let it go. What we're letting go of is the story that I'm an innocent victim and this is the evil perpetrator. We're letting go of that story. We're just dropping it. And in letting it go, what you'll notice is that there's peace. There's a sense of stillness. There's quiet. There's peace. And in that peace is a sense of empowerment. It's by letting go of the story that we actually find our full power again. And another image that I like is that I think we all want peace. And I realized years ago that, that everybody wants peace. It's just that we have radically different notions of how to get there. And most people think that the only way to get to peace is to defeat the enemy. That's why we keep finding ourselves in wars and in cultural wars and conflicts with other people, is that we think the only way to get to peace, if I could just defeat this person or this enemy, then we'd have peace. And that's not going to get us peace because it's feeding the paradigm of conflict. It's feeding the ego's programming. Peace is when we stop fighting. Peace is when, as Christ said, when we turn the other cheek. And it's much more instantly available than we ever thought, but it requires a huge stretch to let go of this story that my mind keeps perpetuating that I'm the victim. And it's really based on fear, fear that we're not going to survive and that we have to react in a defensive or offensive way in order to survive. And, right. and getting back to martial arts tradition, in Aikido, they learn to take the energy coming at them and deflect it in a way that deflects that harmful energy from hurting them, but also doesn't directly hurt the other person. And one of the core things that people learn in martial arts training, and that is they learn not to be afraid while engaged, not only in their sparring, but also in life in general. Because when you learn that you can handle whatever comes at you, you don't, you, you're no longer living in fear of what can come at you. And therefore, you're much, much less likely to react out of fear. And reaction out of fear is like the underlying dynamite that's at the core of what can happen when we misunderstand things or take things the wrong way. That's right. And, and to put it into this probably oversimplified storyline that I'm presenting here, the ego wants to keep us in fear simply because when we're afraid, we turn to the ego for help. Think about it. You know, when you feel fear, when I feel fear, our first impulse, our knee-jerk reaction is to begin to think about how to be safe. You know, we start thinking about how can I defeat this thing that's threatening me, usually the train of thought. And as soon as we engage our thinking mind, we're engaging the ego, and we're guaranteeing our alliance with the ego. So the ego keeps us in fear so that we'll depend on it. It's the only thing we, we absolutely trust and depend on is our own, our own private thoughts, our own mind, our own ego. And in that dependency, we perpetuate it. Um, and that's, again, the, the, the wisdom and the beauty behind that often misunderstood teaching by Christ, turn the other cheek. All he was saying was, 
don't feed the ego. And that's a difficult ask because, as you said, the mind just keeps making up stories that this is my enemy and I need to, for my own survival, I need to do something here. And so the practice of meditation is letting go of those stories, is, as you said, so simply and beautifully not believing the story that our mind is telling us. And as we let go of the stories, and this is something that each one of us can practice for ourselves and notice, when I let go of the story, whatever the story is, the consequence is peace. The fear goes with the story. The sense of something is threatening me just dissolves with the story. And I now find myself at peace. And in peace, in stillness and calmness, I'm smarter. I have all my wits about me. In presence, pure presence, I can react. I can react much better. I can actually guarantee my survival way better if I'm in peace than if I'm in fear. And that's really the angle that this spiritual practice takes undoing the tyranny of the ego is so that we can have our full presence back. And when we're in presence, we can take care of ourselves. And as you said, knowing that I can take care of myself gives me this tremendous sense of peace. Mm -hmm. Now, you also talk about true knowing distinct from intellectual knowing. Yeah. And I think a lot of us don't have enough experience to to make that distinction within our own experience. So I would love for you to talk about those two things and how they are related and how they're not related. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's similar to what we spoke about a short while ago, the difference between a thought and a direct experience. So that's kind of the more fundamental distinction to begin to, to just question or observe is can, can you tell the difference between when you're having a direct sensory experience, some, some information, some sense data is coming in through one of your five senses, can you tell the difference between that and a thought about that? And similarly, those are kind of a good way to define the two ways of knowing. There's a knowing that's a direct sensory experience knowing. So to make this sort of relevant or use the example of meditation practice. And in the insight meditation tradition, in this practice, very simple practice, it's bringing awareness, bringing attention back to the sensation of your belly moving up and down with the breath. So if you sit calmly and allow your body to relax, you'll see that the body breathes. It does it by itself. And then with, it, with each breath, there's movement in the belly. The belly sort of rises up a little bit and falls down a little bit. So you have to relax your body and kind of sit upright, and then you'll start to notice that. The practice is to bring attention back to that simple sensation and, and to be right with it. So you notice, is my belly rising right now? Is my skin muscles expanding with that in-breath? Or is it fully risen and now there's a pause or is it falling, is it collapsing with the out-breath? What's actually happening as I can feel it in the, in the physical sensations in my abdomen? That's very different than thinking about the breath. <laughs> and when I give the teaching and instruction for people to meditate and, and focus on the breath, I think all of us in the beginning start by thinking about the breath. We think, okay, now I'm breathing in, now I'm breathing out, now I'm breathing in, now I'm breathing out. And that's not 
feeling it, that's thinking about it. So the difference between figuring something out with your thinking mind and knowing it with your awareness is just that. When your belly's rising, you know that it's rising because you can feel it. And most of our knowledge, most of what we call intelligence, is basically just storing information, ideas, facts. And there's nothing wrong with that. Facts are good. They're helpful. But that's not what I call intelligence. That's sort of what I would call artificial intelligence. That's what computers can do beautifully. They can store all this information, all this data. And that's how we're using our thinking mind, is we figure something out, we make a conclusion, we draw a conclusion, and then we store it as, a, as an idea or a fact in our mind. And we regurgitate it when it's necessary on a test or if we need that information. And that's one way to use our thinking mind, but it's not a very precise way. It leaves us with a lot more questions than it does answers, because everything that we understand through that kind of thinking, through dualistic comparative evaluation thinking, everything we understand has an opposite. Everything has something to contrast it with. So it's all just theory. It's all relative. Everything that we know through our thinking mind is relative. And that's one way of getting a grasp on our world, and it's the way that most of us use. But it's not very accurate because it's distorted. It's distorted through the ego's programming of the thinking mind direct knowing my belly's rising right now with the in-breath I can feel it my butt you know my shoulders are tight I can feel that they're tight direct knowing because I can feel it I can sense it directly that's a very different kind of knowing and that can lead to what we call in the meditation tradition insight insight is in, an, in another in the Christian tradition might be called revelation it's just a direct knowing. It's when you see something from a different perspective and it suddenly appears in clarity. It suddenly makes sense to you. That's an aha moment. And as we cultivate direct awareness, we have more, the mind has more and more of those insights, more direct knowings. And we just know it because it's clear. We know it. We didn't think about it. We didn't add up, you know, and compare things. It's just a direct seeing. And it's either useful in that moment or it isn't, and then we let it go. It's not something you store up. An insight isn't something you, you compile and put into a book. Uh, you can share your insights. I can share my insights, and maybe they'll inspire you or someone else to have your own insights. But it's really that insight, that, that knowing that comes from a direct awareness. Some people would, might call it intuition or just having a sense of something. That's what I'm talking about. And it turns out it's much more accurate and precise and certain than any kind of knowing that we have through comparative evaluation. You also talk about how the ego and the mind love complexity and how direct experience is very simple. And for many people, it can seem very boring to just pay attention to what is happening without thinking about it. Because I think yes. many people are very entertained by their thoughts when, yes. when they're not being terrorized by them. That's right. That's right. I mean, think about our, you know, just to back up from that a moment, just think about our fascination with movies, especially today with the, all of us spending so much time at home and 
being able to stream unlimited movies. It's fascinating. We love we love stories played out on the screen in movies like that. And and not only that, but we love scary stories. There's this whole genre of terror and horror stories. And I've always just been dumbfounded at our fascination with being scared by these movies. And then I realized that's what we do with our thinking mind. Our thinking mind scares us and makes these scary stories and sometimes beautiful stories. But we're fascinated by the story. We're we're mesmerized by the complexity of the images that our mind can generate and the story think about it this way we can't take our eyes off our thinking mind because it's telling the story of ourselves it's the movie you're watching the movie of tonio unfold in your mind and i'm watching the movie of miles unfold in my mind i'm glued to it i'm glued to it <laughs> you know it's got our attention because we're fascinated by it and it's so complex until you begin to realize that it's not going anywhere. It's just repeating itself. It's repeating the same patterns, and the patterns are painful. Embedded in these patterns is ideas like, I'm the victim. I never have enough. There's always somebody who has more. There's always somebody who's better. The grass is always greener on the other side. There's something better than what I have now. Part of the great dysfunction of the ego programming is that we always want what we don't have. And when you start to see it for what it is, you realize it's, it's rotten at the core. It's causing suffering. It's, create, it's causing the conditions for my life to feel, you know, drab and painful and conflicted and I never get enough and I never have what I need. We get excited by the story, the, the story of... I'm the victim and I'm going to defeat my oppressor. We get all worked up by that story and it gets our attention, but it never resolves itself. And the practice of meditation, it's necessary to go through the boredom of just watching your breath compared to the elaborate, complex images and thoughts that the mind can generate. Yeah, watching, being aware of the belly rising and falling with each breath is boring. But to sit through that long enough that you can start to see the thinking mind for what it's doing, and you just lose your interest in it. You realize it's, it's sound and fury signifying nothing, as Shakespeare said. It's really just a lot of drama over and over and over again. And it's when you get sick of that drama, when you get sick of your own mind, or when you really want an end to the suffering. And that's how, that's how Buddha presents it. When you really want an end to your suffering, when you no longer want to be the victim, when you no longer want your life to be all about conflict and tension and fighting, then you start to be willing to let go of that complexity. And the simplicity looks better and better and better because it's peaceful. Mm -hmm. There's a certainty to it. There's a stillness that's really dependable there. Mm -hmm. And that starts to look way more interesting and more satisfying than all the complexity of our, of our mind. But also, once we're able to see through the nature of our ego and our thinking mind, we can actually choose, you know, deliberately choose what things we want to think about and to be entertained by. So it's not sure. necessarily about giving up all that stuff. It's about letting go of the stimulus response mechanism so that we're in a place of choice, just like the Aikido master who 
who sees what's coming and doesn't respond with fear or violence, but just responds appropriately to it. And yeah, what's appropriate exactly. for the, different people is, is different. Everybody's different. Everyone has different interests and different inclinations and different desires. And not all desires are bad or wrong. It's, it's a matter of getting in touch with what's most important or relevant or meaningful for us at a level below the ego. Yes. So you know, a couple ways to kind of refine what you're saying, I think, is that the ego has us confused between what our real needs are. And, and a good example of that is in the ego's paradigm, being right or winning is the most important thing. Being right is what it tries to do, getting, getting it right, being right, having the right idea, being right and winning. And those don't meet our needs. Our basic needs are things like security, belonging, connection, love, peace. You know, those are basic needs, and being right isn't one of them. <laughs> so the ego has us really caught in its spell, catering to its needs, which are not our needs. And so really this is about seeing through that and recognizing that meeting the ego's needs doesn't meet my needs. Trying to win or be right doesn't really do anything for me. It doesn't meet my need for well-being or happiness or contentment at all. And so part of getting wiser, becoming smarter, more intelligent, I would say, is understanding what are my real needs and how can I actually focus on my needs, not my ego's needs. And as you're saying, that can boil down to choices, making, having and making better choices. And so it's not that we get rid of the thinking mind or the capacity for imagination. It's that we don't let it run our lives, which is what it's doing now for most of us. We hold it in perspective. It's just like most of us had to learn in the early days of computers, and some people, a lot of us are still learning this, is that you know computers are so complex and they're so fascinating, and with the access to the World Wide Web, you can go so deeply into, I guess, what we're calling now these rabbit holes when you get on your computer, and you could... So, you know, when I first got my computer 20, 30 years ago and, and realized, you know, I could sit here for an hour, many hours, three, four hours would just go by, and I would be, have realized I was lost in the computer. I was going from one thing to another. And after a while, I realized that wasn't making me happy. It wasn't what I wanted. I like a computer. I use it. But now I really limit my time. I sit down, I do what I need to do, and then I get up and leave. <laughs> Or, I, you know, for most people now, that might be the equivalent of pulling out your phone. But you pull out your phone, do what you need to do, and then you put it away. The metaphor that I like to use with all this is that living in the world of your thinking mind, which I would argue most of us do most of the time, and is not that different from being immersed in your phone or your computer. Being absorbed in your phone or computer is very much like being absorbed in your thinking mind. I think that technology is just the extension of what we're already doing in our thinking mind. Being absorbed in your thinking mind, as most of us are, and, and mesmerized by the images and the movie, what I call the movie of you, that's like sitting in a movie theater, a dark movie theater, watching your life unfold on the screen all the time. So imagine yourself sitting in a room in your house or a dark theater, just looking at the screen all the time, and then getting up when you need to go to the bathroom or get food and maybe going to sleep and waking up and then doing it all again. 
Meanwhile, outside that room, outside your house or outside the theater, there's a world. There's life. There's reality. There's wind and sun and plants and trees and people and cities and countryside. But we don't, we're just in our room or in our theater looking at the movie. Once you get out of the theater and see that there's a world out there, at first, you may want to keep going back into the movie theater because it's safe and it feels it feels familiar. But eventually, you're going to be bored and not interested in the movie anymore because life is so much more interesting. Life is real. It's actually happening in present time, not as remembered or projected as the mind does it. And what I've learned over all these years is that the movie of Miles is less and less interesting to me. I'm just not that interested anymore. <laughs> and it's not because I shoved it away or pushed it away. It's because as I got more involved in real things, what's actually happening in this moment, what my senses are telling me, I just lost interest in the story. The past isn't that interesting to me. The future's not that interesting to me. But what I think about something, my conclusion about it, is, isn't that interesting to me. Because those things change all the time, and they're relative. They're not real or certain. And I prefer this present moment experience now, more and more and more. And I think that's what Buddha was trying to get us to do, was realize that in presence, in our present moment awareness, is when we're really happy. It's when we're really content. It's where the energy is. It's where the joy is. And it's when we're in the story of ourself, caught in our mind, it's kind of dead. And it's the same old thing over and over again. Yes. And it made me think of listening, you know, the practice of listening. Most of us just listen to ourselves, and we, we don't really like listening to others because other people's opinions and thoughts are different from ours, and we always think that we're right, and we have to butt in and, and assert our opinion over theirs. And I've been finding that I just love listening to other people, particularly when they're talking about the things that they're really passionate about and mm -hmm. most interested in. And if we spend our time just listening to ourselves or what we're interested in, then our our world doesn't expand. It doesn't grow. It doesn't evolve. It just kind of turns in upon itself. Yes, and, and I, it's beautiful what you're saying. I'm loving the way you're putting it. And I just want to add to that that the consequence of that, of, of paying so much attention to our own story, is that we feel lonely. We feel isolated. Our world becomes very small. We're in our own exclusive little bubble, which is what the ego's intention is. It's what the ego is, is the idea of us as a separate, distinct completely independent unit, a bubble. And in that experience, it's scary because we're alone. And it, it doesn't feel secure. It doesn't feel cozy. It doesn't feel warm. It feels cold. It feels scary because we're alone. And we're, we like that feeling of belonging, of being connected, of having being part of something much bigger than ourselves. And that's what happens when you stop paying attention to your own story. And as you say, you know, listening to other people's stories. It's not the, the point of good listening like that, and I think probably some of the listeners know, and you certainly know, that I teach communication skills. So listening is something that I'm really passionate about. 
And I try to tell people the point of listening is not just to be a good person. It's not to be a good listener. It's so that your world gets bigger. You experience yourself connected to that person when you put yourself in their shoes, when, when you can empathize with another person. And that's what good listening is, is really all about, is activating our capacity for empathy. And when I can empathize with you or with another person, I can feel your experience as if it were my own. It's a, I have a clear healthy boundary there. I'm not, I'm not confusing the two, but I can really feel into your experience by listening to you. When I can do that, my world becomes bigger. I become connected to you, and I'm connected to something bigger than me, and in that, I feel happier. I feel more peaceful and content. That actually meets my needs for security and belonging and connection. And it also has an effect upon the world around us. And to paraphrase something that you say in the book, until we experience that realm of direct experience beyond thought or underlying thought, until we have that direct experience for ourselves and come to know it and distinguish it from our our thinking and our stories and our fears and anxieties, until then, our world will remain fragmented and chaotic, lacking meaning purpose, and unity until we see ourselves as part of the fabric of life, we will continue to destroy our planet and undermine our own survival as a species. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for reading that. So the point there really is that this this is important. (laughs) (laughs) This is not just a sideshow. It's not just something we do on weekends. Or navel I'm not advocating that this is something we do on weekends, you know, to have a calmer life. This is, this is critical to see that in a world that's as fragmented as our world appears to be, where there's so much conflict and so many different points of view, all competing to be right, we're going to, and we are, ripping apart the fabric of life. We're now at the point where we can see our scientists telling us that we're we're degrading the atmosphere of our planet. We're, we're diminishing the capacity of our, our planet Earth to support life, which includes us. That's a pretty dramatic turn of events, and I think should get all of us to pay attention. And what I am simply saying is that all of that is, is a natural, inevitable consequence of believing that we're an ego. If we invest in our ego, if we stay allied with our separate sense of self, and we don't question it, and we don't experience ourselves as anything different from that, we will be in perpetual conflict, and we won't be connected to a larger whole of life, and we will inevitably not take care of life because it's not part of us. We see it as something other, and if we see it as other, we're not going to take care of it. We're not going to do what's necessary to be good stewards of the earth, for example. And what I'm advocating here is an experience of yourself as something different, which comes from, in my case, through meditation practice. It can come in other ways. Sometimes it happens spontaneously, but it's an experience of suddenly everything in your mind goes quiet, and there's a stillness and a one-pointedness. There's a singularity to it. It's no longer this compared with that. The thinking mind has gone quiet, and yet you're still there, and you feel this immense sense of presence, stillness, awareness. And 
when a person, when a human being experiences themselves that way, it's hard to go back to believing in the ego's story. We do go back, as you said earlier, the ego keeps creeping up and keeps overtaking us. But once we've had that experience of stillness and we know ourselves as something much bigger than the ego, you know, in that stillness, in that sense of pure presence I'm talking about, that you know, is still for many of us a pretty rare moment, but it happens. In that moment, we feel ourselves huge, enormous, connected with all of life, not just Earth, but the whole universe. <laughs> and when you've had that experience, it's really hard to go back to believing that you're just this single individual having to fend for themselves. It's a, it's a game changer. And that's the point of this teaching and this, this what I call spiritual practice or a tool like meditation is to engender those experiences, to cultivate the, the conditions that enable that experience to happen and, and to have them more and more and more frequently. And as I experience myself more and more as this huge, enormous, you know, infinite awareness, consciousness itself, as I experience myself as consciousness itself without the I, without miles as, as the center of it, my whole world is different. And it's much harder than to go back to believing in, in I and miles as a separate, alone individual after that experience. It's not very fulfilling to go back to that experience. No. <laughs> in fact, it's, it's downright painful. Yes. So talk about the resources that you offer to help people experience that connection to being part of something much greater than, than our own individual separateness and separate stories and separate ego. Yes, thank you for that. I, so yes, I live here in Vermont. I live in a little town called Standard up in the Northeast Kingdom, about an hour north of Montpelier. And I have a facility here, a small retreat center called Sky Meadow Retreat. You can look us up online at skymeadowretreat.com. And we host retreats. We have individual solo retreats and group retreats. Right now, because of COVID, we're very limited in what we can do. But in normal times, we have a regular schedule of retreats here. And the ones that I lead are focused on insight meditation and conscious communication skills. And both of those are tools or technologies for cultivating, activating this experience that we've been talking about of pure presence, where where I feel connected. It's basically the tools interrupt the ego narrative. They interrupt the story, and they give me an opportunity to choose to let it go. And with that opportunity of letting it go comes this feeling of connection and belonging and presence. And so at this retreat, I teach that. We have intensive retreats where people do meditation and practice conscious communication skills together, and I guide people in, in activating that sense of presence that we all have, and the website where I offer these things and, and speak more about them is called practicalpresence.org. Practicalpresence.org is where you can find out about other resources, including books I've written. I've published five books now that are available on Amazon.com. They're all paper books as well as e-books, and some of them are audio books. There's also a links on a practicalpresence.org website to meditation talks and videos, and I have an online course now that we put out this summer called 
conscious communication skills. So if you go to practicalpresence.org or skymetaretreat.com, you'll find resources and it's a place to start. I'm, I'm interested in supporting anyone who's looking for support in cultivating this kind of present experience that we've been talking about here. And these are ways of supporting us in that journey. And I, I was just reminded of, of an old line, um, stop the world, I want to get off. <laughs> and this is a way of, of you know, stopping that, that world that, that's driving us crazy or, or that's limiting us or that's tyrannizing us and doing it without either committing suicide or doing drugs or numbing ourselves with drugs and alcohol. It's a way of yeah. stopping that world. Like um, Carlos Castaneda used that term, his teacher, Don Juan, he said, we have to learn to stop the world. And that's another way of, of talking about what we've been talking about, what you exactly. been talking and, about. And just to put that in context, the way the ego has us convinced is that to stop the world means stopping the tyranny that's out in the world. So we focus our energy and resources on stopping whoever we think is tyrannizing us. And if you look at human society, you'll see that almost all of us are engaged in that all the time. And this is a very different approach. It's suggesting that you can try to stop the tyranny in the world all you want, but it never will succeed because the origin of it is in your own programmed thinking mind. So this approach of looking within what I would call a spiritual practice or tools, spiritual practices for self-awareness, is about finding the cause of that inside your own thinking mind. So the, the place where the world could actually be stopped is in your thinking mind. And as you experience that and things settle down in your mind and in your heart and you experience a moment of stillness, you realize that that's where the chaos and the confusion originates. So it's not, I would argue, it's not possible to stop the world outside of us, even though we're trying really hard to either do that or, as you said, escape from it through, through drugs and distraction and stimulation. We're all trying to escape in some way because it's overwhelming. Meditation goes directly for it, the thinking mind, faces the thinking mind directly and learns, teaches us how to unhook from the thinking mind, just as you would get up from your computer or put your cell phone away, that same process. And in doing that, we realize, ah, now the world stopped for a moment, and now I can collect myself and, and reboot, reset. Mm -hmm. And you also are the author of Beyond Perception, which really goes into great depth of this whole process, as well as conscious communication. And both of, you know, practicing both of those things, they both lead to the same kind of self-understanding and, exactly. and insight. Yep. Yeah. What I like to say is that the practice of meditation, which I talk about in depth and beyond perception, and the practice of communication skills that I really lay out and give, you know, specific guidelines for in conscious communication, both of those, what they really do is interrupt the ego programming so you can see it. That's really all they do, and that's all that's required in order to free yourself from the tyranny of it, from being controlled by the programming of your mind. Once you see it, once you see that your mind is following the same patterns, and that pattern is not serving you, 
you won't be hooked on it anymore. And that's what meditation can do, and that's what practicing conscious communication skills can do. So Beyond Perception explores the inner experience of that, and conscious communication goes into the outer experience. That's of it. right. Conscious communication is practical tools or skills that we can use with each other when we're communicating verbally. So it's a really practical, hands-on, something that most of us do every day, kind of a, a tool, a practice. And meditation, of course, is, is different. It's going inward. It's using your own awareness to take note of your own thinking mind. So very different practices aiming at the very same outcome. Mm-hmm. Well, Miles Schertz, once again, it's been a lot of fun and a pleasure to talk with you about all of this stuff. And same for me, Tony. I'm, I'm really enjoying these talks. <laughs> and next, we'll talk about your other booklet titled Human Nature. Great. I look forward to that. Okay. Until then, be well. Thank you, Tonio, and you too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's not out there. I looked in newspapers. I looked in magazines. But it's not out there. I looked at the ads. I looked at commercials. They said, I guess use this. This is where it's at. But it's not out there. I looked for someone who would fill this emptiness. But so many attempts, so many failures. It's not out there. I went to parties. I drank. I smoked. I chatted. I looked. But it's not out there. I read books by people who had answers, but I forgot them all. The only thing I do remember is, is it's not out there. I blame this person. I blame that person. I blame everyone, but it's not out there. I love to have a... Oh, yes, for guidance. I pray. I went to church, but it's not out there. I've done this over and over. I keep coming back. I look. I find it's not out there. Why? Why do I keep looking out there? I guess maybe it doesn't matter. Why? I guess maybe one day I'll finally, eventually, one day, realize it's not out there. Is it in here?
one finds a fistful. All engaging, all engaging. Perfection's in that non-perfection and I see queen, I see king, I see king, I see queen, well None of you know my kingdom manium Last chance to retract it Last chance to retract it Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>